Well, to our guest, again, I want to welcome you. I just want to um, let you know that uh, Tim Merwin is our lead pastor, and he and his family are on vacation this week. So I have the privilege and the wonderful opportunity to bring the Word of God to you. So if you can, and when you can remember, please remember them in your prayers as they are seeking to refocus and re-energize to get ready for our Christmas Advent series, which Josiah will start for us next Sunday. Well, the title of this sermon is Trusting in the Lord. Last week, we saw that Isaiah had a holy encounter with the holiness of God. And in the presence of God's holiness, Isaiah became intimately aware of his sinfulness, which led him to confess, which led him to declare, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. In God's mercy and grace, the Lord atone for Isaiah's sin. Immediately after Isaiah's redemption, the Lord called him to a prophetic ministry. Now, chapters 1 and 5 were written for us to see Judah's specific sins. Chapter 6 is the Lord's call of the prophet Isaiah to bring the nation's to account. What's striking about Isaiah's prophetic ministry is that he will have a hardening effect in his own people's hearts because of their rebellious and disobedient hearts. God's message through Isaiah for God's people only hardened them in their sin. God's message through Isaiah will be rejected by king, the king of Judah, Ahas, and its people. Case in point, King Ahas rejected God's messages to him. He listened, but he did not understand, and he looked and could not perceive, as what we saw in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Well, let's dive into the sermon. That was the brief introduction, a brief summary. Let's dive into the sermon. A sweetheart wrote a love letter to his sweetheart. And the reading is this. I want you to know how blessed I feel to have you in my life. And in any other lifetime, I would still choose to fall in love with you. I thank God for bringing you to my life. You gave a new meaning to my existence, and I could never imagine a life without you in it. 
I promise to you, my dear, that I will never leave you and I will always be your support, protector, your other half. I am willing to go against anyone who would ever wish to harm you. I will protect you from any danger that threatens your happiness. This is my promise from now until eternity. I will never leave your side. I'll always be here for you, my sweet love. Without you, I'm nothing. With you, I'm everything. Yours forever. In times of fear, in times of struggles, in times of suffering, the trouble with these kinds of promises is that they cannot be upheld. Only our God can. This is why we cannot put our faith and trust in man. We must put our ultimate faith and trust in God Almighty. Because of Judah's rebellious and disobedient heart, judgment was coming. However, in the threat of the attack, the Lord sought to comfort King Ahaz and called him to put his firm faith in him. Church, this is what I believe is the main burden of the text that we're considering this morning. And it is this. In the midst of fear, in the midst of trials, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of suffering, the Lord comforts us by promising that he is with us. Therefore, let us put our firm faith in him. For us today, when we fear, for us today, when we suffer, the Lord comforts us by his promise that he is with us in all of our fears, in all of our suffering, in all of our tears. The Lord is with us. Therefore, Trinity, let us put our firm faith in God, not in man, not in money, not in our economic system, not in our government. So let's look at Isaiah's narrative and learn from Judah's experience. Verses 1 and 2 tells about the trouble days. Look with me at verse 1. In the days of Ahas, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. The country of Assyria is north of Israel, and it's also north of Syria. The Assyrian Empire was growing in power and was pushing aggressively southward toward Egypt. And so the two smaller nations, 
north of Judah, Syria, and the northern kingdom of Israel, which is also called Ephraim, joined together in their forces and were trying to compel Judah, King Ahaz, to join their coalition. That's the backdrop of our text. These two kings threatened Ahaz that they would depose him if he didn't cooperate. We see that in verse 6. In addition, the Assyrians were well known to be a ruthless and wicked nation. They left massive death and destruction in the wake of their advancement. Verse 2. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim or the northern kingdom, Israel, the heart of Ahas and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. A couple of years ago, when I was in my uh, sabbatical, we were able to stay in a farmhouse in northern Michigan. This farmhouse was surrounded by trees. Now, the trees in northern Michigan, actually north of Titusville, are different than uh, the trees that we have here. This particular tree in in front of the the farmhouse had a particular uh, shape in in its leaves so that when the wind blew against this tree, it would shake side to side like this. It was the oddest thing that I saw. It was actually beautiful. Now think of this tree with leaves that blew like this. Now think of a forest with all these trees. When the wind blew, the the leaves would shake side to side like this. This is exactly how King Ahas and the people of Judah feared in their hearts. Assyria was no joke. Let me ask you this, Trinity. What are your fears? What are your fears? Is it the fear of death? Is it the fear of the uncertain future? Is it the fear of not having enough money to provide for yourself or your family? Is it the fear of safety for your family? Tomorrow morning, early, our plan is to leave our home and drive up to Georgia for our vacation. I want to confess to you that I fear for the safety of my family when we drive nine hours. Unfortunately, Alex, who will be with us, will have to come home Thanksgiving Day and he'll have to drive by himself. And I fear for his safety. I fear for Melinda's safety when she goes to uh, a fitness center to work out early in the morning. I fear that she would be abducted and she would be violated and defiled. What is your fear? Is it the fear of losing your job? Is it the fear of failing a class? Is it the fear of mom and dad finding out what you did? Is it the fear of not getting the approval that you are desperately wanting? 
Is it the fear of inevitable sickness that runs through your family line and not getting healed? Is it the fear of not being healed while you're in the throes and the thick of suffering and chronic sickness? Well, if you find yourself in fear this morning, then I believe the Lord wants to assure you. I believe the Lord wants to encourage you. I believe the Lord wants to comfort you in our text. So in the days of fear and the days of trouble, the Lord gives assurance. Our God is amazing. Look with me at verse three. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahas and you and Shear Jashab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I'm going to pause there and I want us to note how many times the Lord speaks to his people in our text this morning. The Lord spoke seven times. We can see this in verses three, four, seven, and 10. And in chapter eight, we see this in one, three, and five. The Lord is speaking to his people during the days of trouble Listen, if you are currently in fear today, then I believe the Lord also wants to speak to you. He wants to assure you. He wants to comfort you. The Lord said in verse three, Isaiah, go out along with your son, Shir Jashub, and tell Ahas while he's inspecting the city's water supply. Tell him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. While Ahas was preparing to defend his city in war, God was trying to tell him, don't worry about these two threatening kings because in a few years, they're going to be like two smoldering stumps of firewood. God was saying, Their threat will not stand, and they shall not come to pass. You see, church, human threats are to be discarded. The threats of the uncertain future are to be dismissed, but but God's promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us is to be trusted. Therefore, we are to place our firm faith in the Lord. Trinity, do you see how the Lord seeks to comfort and assure you in the midst of your fear? Or are you allowing your fears to blind you from God's comfort? Have you ever received an unexpected text? Have you ever received an unexpected phone call? Have you ever received in the mail a praying for you card just when you needed it? That's the Lord speaking to you, trying to comfort you and assure you. 
because the Haas has already made up his mind not to trust in the Lord God. God sent Josiah and his, or Isaiah's son along with, with him. Now, Shir Jashub means a remnant shall return. You might see that in the margins of your Bible. The names in the Old Testament had significance as it relates to God's message to his people. What's happening here is that the Lord God was pronouncing judgment on Ahaz's foolishness because he did not trust in the Lord. You see, by virtue, Shear Jehosh's presence suggests that because Ahaz did not trust in the Lord, that there will be judgment. God's people will be destroyed and will be reduced to a small state. But there is also grace in that meaning. It says a remnant shall return. Judgment, death, and destruction is never God's last word for his people. There is also redemption. Now, I'm not trying to equate God's judgment with your suffering. Sometimes suffering is not related to a committed sin. But if you're finding yourself struggling today, if you're finding yourself suffering this very moment, just know that that is not all that God has for you. There will be deliverance and there will be redemption. There will be healing and there will be a restoration of your health. Listen, where there is suffering and trials in your life, there is also grace to help you persevere and endure through the end of that season. 1 Corinthians 12 says that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord God exhorted to us, if you are not firm in faith, then you will not be firm at all. Ray Ortland, in his commentary of this verse says this, God literally says, if you do not firm up, you will not be confirmed. In other words, you will live by faith or you won't live at all. But if you want, but if you do want my support, then all you have to do is lean on me. That's what God is trying to tell Ahas: is lean on me, trust in me and my power. And that's what God is trying to tell us this morning. If you're in fear, if you're suffering, if you're struggling, lean on him. The principle here is that Ahas must stand firm in his faith if the Lord is going to make him firm in the face of his enemies. In the midst of fear, I want to ask you, church, who are you trusting in? In Isaiah 7, God is offering himself to us so that we can put our firm trust in him. You see, with God as our ultimate ally, we can endure anything and everything. But church, we must put our firm faith in him. 
So in the days of trouble, after the Lord gives assurance, he calls for trust in him. Look with me at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahas. A sign of the Lord your God, or ask a sign of the Lord your God if, or excuse me, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as shoal or high as heaven. Isn't God amazing? It is as if he would move the, the heavens and the earth only if a horse would just put his faith and trust in him. In the face of distrust in divine power, in the face of foolishness and disbelief, the omnipotent God offers to give Ahas a sign to confirm his words, a sign to confirm his message of hope and assurance. That's the grace of our God. You see, Ahas was one of those kings who did not do what was right in the Lord. It wasn't like Ahas was a righteous king and he did what was right in the Lord, um, in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, God felt compelled to reach out to him in the days of trouble. No, he was not a good king. Yet, in Ahas's distrust and disbelief, the Lord still reached out to him. It really isn't about our goodness or our sinfulness, church. It's about God's heart to assure us and to comfort us and so that we can trust in him. It's about the Lord God keeping the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's about preserving the family line of the house of David so that one day the Messiah will come to bring ultimate deliverance for his people. It's about his desire to rescue a sinful people from their sin. He tells Ahas, go ahead and ask for a sign so that you will know that my words are true in the midst of your threats. God said, don't just pick a little sign, pick a huge sign. He said, as big as from the bottom of the earth and as high as heaven. Amazing. And in the face of foolishness and disbelief, what does God do? God goes out of his way to assure and comfort Ahaz's shaking heart. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. At first glance, Ahaz seems to be pious in his reply. But he was just a pious front church. You see, by refusing to ask the Lord for a sign, Ahas demonstrated that he was a willfully disobedient and unbelieving man. You see, Ahas has already made up his mind to, to trust in Assyria 
rather than to trust in God. Ahaz has already made up his mind to trust in the foreign power rather than to trust in divine power. You see, here's the backdrop of our text. Ahaz has already made an agreement with Assyria, the attacking nation, the powerful nation, to attack Syria and Israel. So we've got Assyria, the powerful nation who's growing in power, who's moving southward towards Israel, Judah, and Syria. And so what does little Judah do? He makes a, an agreement with the, the stronger foreign power to attack the smaller two countries that are threatening him. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 16. It says, while being attacked by Syria and Ephraim, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath, Pasar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Assyria. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Israel. And Ahaz took silver and gold from the Lord's house. He took silver and gold from the treasuries of the king's house and sent them to the king of Assyria. And Assyria agreed. But this agreement was a double-edged sword. Look with me at verse 13. And he, this is Isaiah speaking, and he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? This is just play on words here. With Ahasuerus' refusal, in effect, he has doomed the human house of David to destruction. Did you notice the subtle changes in Isaiah's language? Look again in verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Verse 12, Ahas refuses. Verse 13, Isaiah said, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God? Oh, there's something significant here, church. John N. Oswald comments on this verse. He says, Isaiah seems to be saying that Ahaz has rejected the God who would have supported and established him. No longer can the prophet speak of your God. Now it is only my God. In effect, what has happened here is that Ahaz has alienated himself and his house from God. Men of Trinity, let this be a solemn warning for our leadership at home, especially men or dads with young children. We want to wholeheartedly lead our families to trust in the Lord, our God. We want to lead our families to not trust in man's power, but to trust in divine power. Here's how the Lord responded to Ahaz's refusal. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. I love this verse. 
it speaks so much of God's heart and his desire for us to trust him. For Ahas, he had already made up a decision to not trust in the Lord, but for us today, listen to God's heart. In the face of rejection of his offer of a sign, he gave a sign anyway as a testimony of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. Amazing. For Christians today, God gives a sign so that we can fully trust in him. Unfortunately, some of us are too caught up in ourselves. Some of us are too caught up in the strength or resources of others that we don't put our firm faith in God alone, who is almighty. So I want to exhort us, Trinity, to repent if you are living in fear due to any circumstances. You see, the very evidence that you are not trusting in the Lord is the very fear that you are feeling in your heart and in your soul. Do you want to know what the antidote is to fear? Yeah, you you got it right. It's trusting in the Lord. Fear can rob you of your joy. Fear can rob you of your peace. Fear can rob you of your happiness. Fear can rob you of your comfort and assurance. Fear can paralyze you. But trusting in the Lord can wipe out all kinds of fear. Listen, if if the Lord can part the Red Sea, if the Lord can feed the 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves, then he is mighty enough. He is powerful enough. He is worthy to put all of our firm faith and trust in him. He's more than able to do what we need him to do in our lives, in our time of need. Ephesians chapter three, verses 20 and 21 says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, According to the power that is at work within us, to him be all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Listen, if you are an unbeliever, then you have to trust in man. You have to trust in your own abilities. You have to trust in the government. You have to trust in the, 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 the systems that our county and our cities provide for your needs. I want to remind you that man is not perfect, so neither are you. When it comes to the troubles of life, when it comes to the fears of your life, You can only trust in God if you humble yourself and believe in Jesus and accept him as the Lord of your life and accept Jesus as the savior of your life. Unbeliever, let this be the day of your salvation. 
Verse 14 again, it it bears repeating, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Church, by God's grace, he gave Ahas and the people of Judah a sign that he will be with them. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. In the midst of our fears, in the midst of our potential disasters, God is is comforting us. He is assuring us that he will be with us every step of the way in our journey in this lifetime. God is with us, church. Let us put our firm faith in him. Verse 15 says, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. And Isaiah delivered his prophecy in 734 BC. And in 732 BC, two years later, Assyria Assyria defeated Syria. And in 722 BC, Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim. And the prophecy was fulfilled. You see, church, God is more than able. He is very trustworthy. Therefore, church, let us put our firm faith in him. However, not trusting in the Lord has its consequences, doesn't it? Look with me at verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Verse 18, in that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. Not trusting the Lord can have painful and real disastrous consequences. For Ahas, because he did not trust in the Lord, but a foreign nation, the consequences was disastrous. Isaiah warned Ahas that the Lord will use the same, the very same foreign nation, the Assyrians, to invade Judah, his kingdom. And so ravage the land that so the agriculture would, would cease to grow or the, 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 the plants and, and all the produce would cease to grow and that the people would only have dairy products to eat. Have you ever been in Israel? It's an arid country, but its produce, its agricultural is just Amazing. Fields of mango trees with leaves as vivid green as you can see. They're pomegranates. They're humongous. They're bananas. They have to protect them from the birds. 
with nets because they're so plentiful and so healthy. It was once said that Israel alone can produce produce for the entire world. This nation, because of Ahasuerus' distrust in the Lord's power, was reduced to nothing but thorns and briars. And only cattle will roam it. And the only food available Dairy, curds, and honey. The once rich farmland will be turned into a barren wasteland. The same nation that Ahas trusted is the same nation that God used as a tool to bring judgment upon Judah. This nation, this once rich agricultural land will be ravaged and destroyed. Again, where only thorns and briars will grow. Consequences of not trusting the Lord. In the days of trouble, the Lord assures us he will be with us He will call us to trust him because he is faithful, but also just. This is my last point. How are you guys doing? We're going to beat the Baptists to lunch, don't worry. And before the the Cowboys uh, kick off. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it a common, in common characters belonging to Maharshalal Hasbash. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Deberechiah, to attest for me. <laughs> it's the Lord speaking. And he desires so much to prove that he is worthy of our trust. Verse three, and I went to the prophetess, the NIV translation renders it, and I made love to the prophetess. I think I've just distracted most of you, but, but, but stick with me. That point is important because there are different interpretations that are being debated over. And I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahar Shalal Hasbash. For before the boy knows how to cry mother, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. That verse right there, verses three and four has a striking similarity to chapter seven, verses 16 and 17. This is important. I wish you could be tracking with me because there is significance there in our interpretation. And so at this point, I need to make a note that the topic of the Emmanuel prophecy, the topic of the Emmanuel sign in chapter 7, verse 14, has several plausible interpretations. For instance, the word virgin Its meaning is debatable in chapter 7, verse 14. Several word studies have been done on this, and I read my head off for you this week, or last week as I prepared for this. Uh, 
I want to handle the word rightly. And if I'm just faithful in my work, I believe the Lord will bless it. I trust in the Holy Spirit's power to do that for your edification, church. So several studies have been done on this word virgin. So the word virgin can mean a young woman who has not lain with a man, or it can mean a young woman who is a virgin, who is marriageable in age. Respectable, respectable Bible scholars also differ on whether the Emmanuel prophecy has a single or double fulfillment. Fun, huh? So what is the single fulfillment interpretation? What well, states that Isaiah looked forward to the future fulfillment of the Emmanuel child, 714, to the future family line of the house of David, and its full fulfillment is found in baby Jesus. That's the single fulfillment interpretation. The double fulfillment interpretation states that Emmanuel's prophecy of the Emmanuel child was partly fulfilled in the days of Ahas, in the days of Isaiah, and ultimately fulfilled in baby Jesus as Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 understands it. So our question is, which view is right? My answer to you is, be a Berean. Examine the word yourself. I will offer a plausible, more favorable interpretation, but I'm not saying this is the right one. So when this happens, context is king, right? You, you read your text, you read what's after it, you read what's before it, and what's after it and what's before it informs the meaning of your text. All right, here's my attempt. In chapter 8, verse 18, look with me in chapter 8, verse 18. Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Verse 18 says that God used Isaiah and his sons as signs for Israel. Do you remember Isaiah 7, 3? His son's name was Shear Jashab, which means a remnant shall return. This, this, this name has a double meaning. A remnant shall return speaks of two things. If a remnant, if there is a remnant, there must have been a destruction, right? There was judgment. But if it's, there is a remnant that will return, there is grace. There's, there's a, a small group of people that God preserved and saved and kept and protected that will once again take over the promised land, who will take the message of, of God's saving grace to the ends of the world. So there was judgment, but there's also grace. That is the meaning of Sha'ir Jashub. Now, in chapter 8, verse 3, Mahar Shalal Hasbas is the name of Isaiah's second, or Isaiah's son after he married his second wife, who was the virgin prophetess that we see in 
verse three of chapter eight. Presumably, he married this virgin prophetess after his first wife died. Now, the meaning of Maher Shalal Hasbas is the spoil speeds or the prey hastens. Do you see that in your margins? So not my words. Someone who has a few more degrees than I do have said this. I'm going to share it with you. John N. Oswald comments on this. So here's the question. Does the Emmanuel sign have a single fulfillment or does it have a double fulfillment? Here's his take on it. Perhaps the most attractive option is that Emmanuel and Mahar Shalal Hasbaz were one and the same. Now, just, just hold on. Meaning that Mahar Shalal Hasbaz was a prefigure or a type of the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to be very clear about this. There is only one virgin birth, one virgin mother. Her name is Mary and one son. Okay. But Mahar Shalal Hasbaz was the shadow, if you will, of the true substance that was to come. He was kind of like Moses, right? who delivered the nation of Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, who really pointed to Christ, who ultimately delivered his people from the slavery of sin. Do you see that? He was like all of the Old Testament sacrifices that were offered up for the, for the sin of the people. All of those sacrifices all pointed to the once and for all sacrifice for all of sin. So it was God with his people. Was it fulfilled in the New Testament only? How do we understand that? Was God, was, was he with his people? The emphatic, resounding answer is yes. In one sense, the Emmanuel prophecy was partly fulfilled in the days of Isaiah because his son's name spoke of a future judgment when Assyria would conquer Syria and invade northern Israel. Okay? The Assyrian army was quick to plunder and swift to take the spoil. That is the fulfillment of Mahar Shalal Asbas's meaning of his name. The Lord is faithful and just. We're going to wrap this up soon. We're going to land this plane. We'll go eat lunch in a minute. So hang in there with me because I need you to pay attention. God's word has so much more for us. Look with me at verse five. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Isaiah is just saying that because Judah refused the ways of the Lord, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them, Judah, the waters of river, mighty, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. 
Because Ahaz and his people refused to trust in the Lord, a day of judgment was coming for them also. You see, look with me in chapter 7, verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days. Look with me in chapter 8, verse 7. Assyria, like a river, will rise all over its channels and go all over its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. Oh, Emmanuel. There are consequences to not trusting the Lord. This is firsthand account through the Bible of the nation of Judah's consequences. In conclusion, Isaiah saw no permanent victory for the Assyrian invading army because God was with them. You see, Assyria might have planned, they might have strategized, but God would thwart their every step. How do we know that God was with them in the days of Ahaz and Isaiah? Chapter 37 gives us an account that Sennacherib, king of Assyria's army was encamped around Jerusalem. And this powerful nation was certain of their victory. But God was with his people. It says this, but the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 warriors in the Assyrian army. Was God with his people? The emphatic answer is a resounding yes. In conclusion, church, for us today, we don't face a double threat of the Syria-Ephraim coalition, but we do face a triple threat of Satan, sin, and death coalition. Left to ourselves, we are powerless and we cannot protect ourselves and we cannot afford to trust in the power of man. We must trust in divine power. You see, the Emmanuel prophecy was ultimately fulfilled in the promised coming of the Messiah and Satan, sin, and death were defeated when Emmanuel, Jesus, showed up on the battlefield on Calvary. Would you stand with me, church? Let's pray.